0: good? There we go. Well, good morning again. I'm going through a series right now on how we got the Bible. Uh, This is our third week of the series, and today we're going to be talking about the inspiration of Scripture. Next week, we'll cover the authority of Scripture, and then the last week, I will be answering questions that um, hopefully you will be submitting if you have any. Uh, and on that, there's a link on the website where you are able to submit a question anonymously, okay? So uh, if you're a person who's like, well, I have this question, but I don't want um, them to think this way or whatever, uh, we will not know who is submitting the question, uh, and so you can submit it anonymously. I would love for you to do that this week if you have any questions. If you wouldn't mind and have um, your questions submitted by the end of the day next Sunday, that would be helpful uh, just to give me time to collect those and um, and have them ready for the next week. Okay, well, I want to get into the text and the sermon for today because quite honestly there is a lot to cover this week and I don't want to talk too fast, okay? It's a reminder I have to give myself every week. If you look at my notes some weeks, it will say slow on the top because I need the reminder. I don't want that this week um, because it's a lot and I'll be tempted to. So, my prayer is that it it is an encouragement and a help, and that it strengthens your trust and your hope in the Word of the Lord. Uh, The text we're going to look at today is in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16 and 17. If you um, are familiar with the Bible, you've probably been thinking, we're going to get to this verse at some point in this study. Well, it's today To start with, so when you get there, go ahead, and if you're able, stand and follow along as I read 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work pray. Father, thank you for your word that you've entrusted to us. And Lord, we we genuinely want to know you. We want to know who you are and what you are like, and we want to know the way of salvation. And so help us, help us that we would come to your word trusting you through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I want to say here. Uh, from the beginning. We're going to be getting into this text again and maybe even more deeply uh, next week as it pertains to the authority of Scripture, but we want to get into what it means that God's Word is inspired or that God's Word was inspired. The doctrine of inspiration explains how it is that the words of human authors are also the words of God. Inspiration describes how God produces or gives the special revelation of himself through the medium of human authors into what is now the biblical canon. Throughout the message today, we're going to look at this text as well as others to help us to answer that. The passage that we are looking at begins with these words, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now here is our question today. What does that mean? What does it mean that as the ESV puts it, all scripture is breathed out by God? It's not a simple question to answer, but we're gonna try. And here's why it's not simple. The word translated God breathed isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament, or for that matter, Anywhere else in Greek writing that we're aware aware of. Many scholars speculate that it could have been a word Paul coined to describe something literally incomprehensible to humans. God making himself known to them and through them in the scriptures. Michael Byrd writes that the word is ambiguous. Ambiguous. It could mean that Scripture is simply life-giving, just as God's breath gave life to Abram, or to Adam. So too, Scripture gives life, a genuine word of life. More likely, the imagery here is analogous to the depictions of the Spirit coming upon a prophet who then speaks a word from the Lord. Different versions of the Bible in English translate it as follows. The, The NIV the New International Version, and the ESV, the English Standard Version, both translated as God-breathed. The King James Version translate as, translates it as given by inspiration. The New Living Translation, the New American Standard, the uh, New English Translation, the Christian Standard Version, they all translate it as inspired by God. And then the New King James Version translated, translates it as given by inspiration of God. New Testament uh, scholar Scott McKnight suggests the translation God-spirited. So what exactly does that mean? What does it look like? Well, let's first consider some of the things we do know about ways God speaks to and through His people the writer of Hebrews tells us, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. I like think we talked about last week, the Jewish people worshiped a God who communicated to them and his words to them delivered through the prophets were written and preserved over centuries. Centuries. Through wandering, through flourishing, through exile, the Jewish people wrote down and kept the word of the Lord spoken to them by the prophets and recorded the history of his faithfulness to them as a people. I mentioned last week that we don't actually know who the final editor or writer was for some and maybe most of the books that we have in the Old Testament, so consider uh, that as we, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 24 through 26. You can go there. I'm jumping into it, okay? Um, but I'll read it to you from the ESV. Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26 says this, when Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So the question we might ask is, what did Moses write? What did he write in a book and put in for safekeeping in the Ark? Certainly some form of the writings that we have in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, but it's not, it's likely not exactly what we have. why, Why would we say that? Well, let's read farther in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34, verse 1, and then verses 5 through 7. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses goes up on the mountain, He doesn't get to go into the promised land, and dies there. And that line... No one knows the place of his burial to this day is something. It's significant to this conversation. First, we can say extremely confidently that Moses did not, in fact, write about his death after he was dead. We can agree on that. So Moses did not write at least this part of Deuteronomy. Someone else has likely collected and compiled material, certainly mostly coming from Moses, but Moses also is probably not responsible for things in the Torah that predate him. Like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And so, over time, someone has been at work to collect and compile and preserve things that Moses wrote and things from before Moses. We don't know who that person is. But we can guess from the text that it was at a time long enough after Moses that no one knew where Moses was buried, and he can say with integrity then, to this day, which, which means something. It's a significant amount of time has passed, in other words. Another clue that I hinted to last week comes from Jeremiah, in Jeremiah uh, Chapter 36, verse 32, it says, Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Je- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. Okay, so a few things here. The book that Jeremiah had written gets burned in a fire. And so they write another scroll. That other scroll is some form of the book of Jeremiah that was dictated to Baruch, but look at the last phrase in that verse. And many similar words were added to them. Now, what does that mean? And who is writing the book of Jeremiah? Well, we know that physically writing, it looks like it's Baruch that's writing it when Jeremiah is telling him what to put to to scroll. But there were many similar words added to those. Now, there are other examples like this in the Old Testament. I mention them for two reasons. First of all, for transparency. Because we need to address these sorts of things rather than make excuses or deny that they're actually there. And secondly, to say before we get deeper into the inspiration of Scripture, Not knowing the author of a book of the Bible or many books of the Bible does not mean we cannot be confident in the truthfulness of the Bible. We know that from the book of Hebrews, which I have already quoted from this morning. We have no idea who wrote the book of Hebrews. But we trust the message that we have there following 2,000-year a 2,000-year history of the canon of the New Testament. So let's get into what we know about the nature of inspiration. I want to approach this by looking at four aspects of the inspiration of Scripture as we consider the human writers, and then four aspects of, the, of inspiration as we consider the divine author, God. God. So what do we know as it pertains to the human part of the writing of Scripture? First, Scripture retains the intention of the human author. What I mean by intention is that the human writers really wrote what they really wanted to say to their audiences. They're not writing against their will. They're full participants in the composition of the letter or the gospel or the poem that they're writing. There are many ways to say things, right? If we're not careful, we can be misunderstood by how we say certain things. And that's just among those of us who are like each other. How much more for people from different cultures writing in different languages ages and ages ago John Piper writes concerning this in the Bible, since we've got God inspiring this book, we've got God's intention mediated through the intention of human authors. I include in meaning or intention the necessary implications of what an author says, some of which he can see and some of which he can't. The writers who wrote the scriptures intended for their words to mean certain things. And this is where last week and the following are important because we need to do the work of learning the cultures to which the words are written. And if possible, learning the intention of the author of that book. As an example, in Matthew chapter 8, it says that a centurion came to Jesus. And we go to the book of Luke, we learn from Luke, that it was representatives who came on the centurion's behalf. So we should ask, what was the intention of Matthew in writing that? We can trust that his intention was that a centurion made contact with Jesus however that contact was made. Second, Scripture respects the personality of the human author. And now that we're midway through this series, it probably won't surprise you to learn that there are several different views on how the scriptures are inspired. If you want to go deeper into these um, differing views, I would refer you to Michael Bird's treatment of it in, uh, in the book Evangelical Theology. It is a big book. It's a small section that you would go to, okay, and then eat up the rest of it, but some hold to inspiration as nothing more than divine dictation, where God spoke into the minds of an author of Scripture, and that person then in turn writes word for word what they hear. And while there are certain parts of the Bible that admittedly We see that when God tells Moses to write down the words of the Song of Deliverance that the Israelites would sing as a memorial to what the Lord had done. Other places like that as well. those, Those places are specified with words like, the word of the Lord came to. But when we take into account all of the unique personalities of the biblical writers... I don't think the divine dictation is what is taking place. I mean, take, for example, um, consider the beginning of Luke's gospel account. Remember how Luke's gospel begins? It says this, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us," It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now now we ask did God dictate word for word that to Luke? No. Luke really did study, he really did interview. He did listen. He did learn. And he wrote out an account of what happened. Not only that, but this gets difficult when we consider a text like 1 Corinthians 1 15 and 16, where Paul could not remember who he baptized in Corinth. I mean, did God cause Paul to write that? Or was that Paul writing from his heart that was guided by the Spirit? Did God inspire Luke to say that he carefully looked into things but didn't actually need to look into things because God caused the words that he wanted? I am more persuaded that God guides human minds at the conceptual level. General notions and broad ideas and building blocks for words and sentences. The authors then wrote a message consistent with the divine intention. It's the direction of personal thinking, it directs thoughts and not syllables. It's this uh, kind of supernatural connection between God's ideas and their verbal expression in the minds of individual authors that seems to make the most sense of human articulations of things like Paul forgetting and Luke researching. Consider other things like John squeezing into his resurrection account that he was faster than Peter. Or just read the four gospels and see the difference in the personalities of each author and how some things are highlighted or recounted in different ways. Third, inspiration reflects the time, place, and audience to which it was written. David, in Psalm 23, says that the Lord is his shepherd. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John 10. Paul says that those who lead the church are shepherds. The word pastor is is from pastoral, a shepherding term. Paul says those are uh, all those things about shepherding, the beautiful pictures of sheep and shepherding are Im- imagery that only works in a land and a culture where sheep raising takes place, right? Where sheep exist. A reflection of time and place and culture. People living on an island that had never seen a sheep, wouldn't get the significance of those passages as someone living in ancient Middle East. Even though it's absolutely true that Jesus and His good news is for them as well. That's why missionaries and Bible translators bringing the Scriptures to uh, people who've never heard the Gospel work diligently to faithfully contextualize the gospel for the people they're bringing it to so that the inspired word of God is understandable and relatable within their cultural framework. Along these lines, again, the Bible was not written to or talking about the United States of America. Consider Jeremiah 29, 11 which is hijacked far too often for wall decor and personal encouragement. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. That was written specifically for the time, place, and culture of Jeremiah. I you look at verse 10, right before it, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. So Jeremiah, or the Lord through Jeremiah, is writing to an exiled people about the Lord's plan to bring them back. That is it. There's nothing more. It's not written to me. Now, does God know his plans for Tony? Yes, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that Jeremiah was prophesying that for me or to me. I'm going to confess to you, I almost took that paragraph out this morning. Because I never want to come across as condescending. I'm not saying that you have to take that down from your wall. Just acknowledge the context. Can someone in Appalachian Hills of Kentucky or West Virginia claim to that, cling to this while they are hoping to feed their children this week in the same way that we can cling to it on our walls? Similarly, Philippians 4:13, I can do all things through Christ, through Christ who strengthens me. This is going to shock you. That was not written about your favorite football team <laughs> or whatever you did in the gym this morning. Inspiration reflects the time, the place, culture and audience to which it was written. Fourth, inspiration recognizes the limitations of the author's understanding of the world around him. Now, what does that mean? You consider the Psalms. When David or anyone else describes the heavens or the earth, they have limited understanding. Does God know? Absolutely. Does the human he uses to write? No. He doesn't know what we know now because of the progression of science and technology. He doesn't understand that we are on an orb going around the sun. I barely understand that we are on an orb going around the sun. And the author's language reflects that limited understanding. So we don't hold a human writer of ancient scripture to modern day understandings or expectations as they write from their own finite human understanding. So those are four things we know about inspiration as it relates to the human writers of scripture. But what about the divine aspect? Well, here are four things we know about the divine nature of inspiration, aspects of inspiration as we consider the divine author god first it retains the intention of god in communicating his word to his people i quoted john piper earlier i want to go back to him as he zooms out from the human intention to divine intention he says god's intention goes beyond human intention quote because he sees all the innumerable necessary implications of what they can't see. When I think of the intention of the author, I am thinking of all that the human author intended to teach and all that God intended to teach, which is always bigger than what humans can see in their implications of what God inspired them to write. You Go back to our scripture passage today. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be approved for every good work God's intention through all of the scriptures he has provided and preserved for his people is that he would be formed that we would be formed by them for every good work Second, respects the character and nature of the one true God. This is so, so important as we consider inspiration and also inerrancy. The doctrine uh, that that the scriptures are wholly without error, error in their original manuscripts. The Bible is true and trustworthy because God, who is the author is true and trustworthy. I mentioned last week about uh, how things, notes, were added to help later generations understand, primarily in the Hebrew Bible, and that those notes were then copied and included in the text as Scripture. In all of that, the Scripture still demonstrates the character and nature of the one true God, and we Know that his character is one of truth, of trustworthiness. John 3:33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this: that God is true. Third, it reflects the omniscience, that means uh, all-knowing, omnipresence, that he is all-present everywhere and omnibenevolence, that He is all good. It reflects the omniscience, omnipresence, and omnibenevolence of God. John Stott said this, On one hand, the message of the Bible is exactly the same for all men in all places and at all times. Its relevance is not limited to any particular generation or any particular culture. On the contrary, it is addressed to all of mankind This is because God's revelation in Christ and in Scripture is unchangeable. He continues, On the other hand, its inalterability is not a dead, wooden, colorless uniformity, for as the Holy Spirit used the personality and culture of the writers of His Word in order to convey through each something fresh and appropriate, so today He illumines the minds of God's people in every culture to perceive its truth freshly through their own eyes. It is He who opens the eyes of our hearts, and these eyes and hearts belong to young and old, Latin and Anglo-Saxon, African, Asian and American, male and female, poetic and prosaic. It is this magnificent and intricate mosaic of mankind which the Holy Spirit uses to disclose from Scripture evermore of the many-colored wisdom of God. God knows every human being who has ever been on this planet, from the tiniest island to the highest mountain, from city to farm. And His word is, for them. Whereas the human side of this described how the picture of sheep and shepherd might not be understood The same by an islander as a uh, culture familiar with shepherding. God is the good shepherd to people in the Middle East. And God is the good navigator to the wayfinding people of the most isolated islands. And fourth, it recognizes God's ultimate purpose of redemption and restoration of all things in Christ. Ultimately, This is the good news of the inspiration of Scripture. God is not confined by time or space or the earth or anything in it. His word was always meant to reveal himself and draw his people to him as his people will be with him for all of eternity. God's word is an arrow. An arrow to the hope we have in Christ, the Logos, who in the beginning was with God and was God. On this, consider for a moment how God's word, the Bible is an arrow. We won't be doing devotions in heaven. Now that doesn't mean that God's word will end. We know that the Bible says otherwise, but it is history. And we will be with him one day. That is and has always been the purpose and goal of Scripture. Okay, so with all of that, let's talk about the Bible you are holding in your hand. The truth is that your Bible came from a publisher. The publisher printed a particular English translation. That translation was based on the efforts of a group of translators who worked with editions of the New Testament in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic. There are multiple translations just in English, right? You go to... Are there Christian bookstores anymore? Go to Barnes & Noble and just look at the selection of, of different versions of the Bible. The ESV that we use here, it's what I preach from, is not a new translation. It's an adaptation of a previous translation, which is the Revised Standard Version. To quote Wayne Grudem, a member of the Translation Oversight Committee for the ESV, the ESV is 92% word-for-word of the RSV from 1971, which came from the KJV line of translations. In other words, the ESV translation team relied on the previous work of the RSV translation team. When we consider this, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to ask, is the Bible I'm holding inerrant? Because the definition of inerrancy that I gave above, the Scriptures are inerrant... In the original manuscripts. And we don't have those. Just as I shared last week. It would be appropriate to ask. Is it trustworthy? Is it a faithful translation into English? Is it reliable? Is it true? That being said. Let me say two things before we come to the end today. First. First we need to be careful about pride or arrogance about whatever version that we prefer. The ESV is not the one true inspired Bible or even the most reliable. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. But we must be careful. It's why I've I've encouraged you for years To go to more than one translation. I read the ESV. I read the New English Translation. I read the New Living Translation. I'm often refreshed by reading the message. uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible. There is good in all of it. And it's helpful and best to not depend on one translation. There are things things in the ESV that I come across and I find that they're not the best translation of a particular text. To be, be humble in your approach to translations of the Bible and be cautious in that. Second, I cannot emphasize enough that we have to approach the Bible. We need to approach the Bible with the culture in mind. I know it just sounds like a gong that I'm saying that through this whole series. you got two more weeks of it because I'm just going to keep hounding this. With the culture in mind, we read things today in our culture with a journalistic mindset, a fact-checking mindset. And so, if there's a political speech or an article written, we do or we should go through it to see if what is being said is exactly true, if it's a precise quote or an exact number. The Bible, especially the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well, was written in a culture and time when it was passed along by oral tradition and it was completely normal for for stories to be t- passed down and to be told from a person's perspective and still be readily accepted as true so i'll give you two quick examples first and second chronicles we have first and second chronicles in our canon of scripture in the old testament coming right after first and second samuel first and second kings and then first and second chronicles but those were put there in the canonization of the old testament in the hebrew bible first and second chronicles are at the end they're the last books and honestly that makes more sense because even even though those books tell the similar stories they were written hundreds of years later That's why you read 1 and 2 Chronicles, and sometimes you scratch your head and think that's not how it read in the other account. But it was written in and for a different culture, retelling the story that had been passed down. Similarly, why do we have three different accounts of the healing of the blind man in the Gospels, or blind men? Matthew, Mark, and Luke give different details. Two of them say there was one blind man. One says there were two blind men. One says Jesus was entering town. Another says he was in town. And then another says he was leaving town. Now, here's the thing. Those differences don't change the theology, the purpose, or the truthfulness of the story in any way. But we have three men who were giving their human account of what they saw, or in Luke's case, what he researched and wrote it down. And both of these, in other circumstances, are faithful to the culture and time and trustworthy in that. And to end, I want to read a quote from B.B. Warfield as it pertains to this. The whole Scripture is the product of, of divine activities which enter it, however, not by superseding the activities of the human authors, but confluently with them, so that the scriptures are the joint product of divine and human activities, both of which penetrate them at every point, working harmoniously together to the production of a writing which is not divine here and human there, but at once divine and human in every part, every word in every particular. According to this conception, therefore, the whole Bible is recognized as human, the free product of human effort in every part and word. And at the same time, the whole Bible is recognized as divine, the word of God, his utterances of which he is in the truest sense, the author the human and divine factors in inspiration are conceived of as flowing confluently and harmoniously to the production of a common product. And the two elements are conceived of in the scriptures as the inseparable constituents of one single and uncompounded product. We are blessed. We're blessed with the gift that the Lord has Passed along to us in his word. Ultimately because it points us to Jesus. Jesus we know is the word made flesh. He is holy, true. And all of scripture is meant to lead us to him. That is the goal of scripture. And should be our desire and goal as well. And that's the blessing of the Lord's Supper. It leads us to Jesus. To remember him, to remember his sacrifice for us and to fellowship with him as we take bread and the cup. And so we're going to go into a time where we sing and you're going to be dismissed to come and receive the bread and cup and then take it back to your seat And we'll take it together after we're done singing. But what a gift we have in the Word, ultimately, which is Christ. What a gift we have in Jesus. And anything that draws us to Him, whether it's through the Scriptures or through the gift of the Lord's Supper, this tangible reminder of who He is of his gift to us, of his sacrifice of his own life. It's a blessing. And so let's count it as that. This joy-filled, joyful blessing as we remember who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace, Lord. Thank you. You're so good to us in so many ways and we, we confess we thank you for the word. There are things in it we don't comprehend, we don't understand, but we trust that you are leading us to you. We experience that. You're leading us to yourself through the Word. We thank you for Jesus, the Word made flesh. And and even now, as we sing of your sacrifice, Lord, and we partake of the um, elements that remind us, Lord of that sacrifice. We're grateful for these things that draw us to you. We ask that you help us in that, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.